Hi, and welcome to another Safety View. We've got a great conversation. It's already in play. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, Ron. Hey, Rosa. How's it going? It's going. Um, You know, we we did have kind of an uprising. What are you talking about? I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, where? What happened? Yeah. He doesn't know. I just logged on. What's going on? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the matrix you know I, I was watching a documentary on ai and of course these are real enthusiasts right and the more they talked about it the more i thought why are we why are we doing ai <laughs> because it's an unstoppable uh, movement that's going to bring consciousness to machines and then you have to get into the whole thing of you know who's going to survive, who's going to run the world. And of course, it's going to be the machines. And so then people have to become cybernetic. And I'm- But I'm then they can, dance. they can dance all those robots. <laughs> oh Some people are excited about that. They want to live forever, right? So, so be a robot and live forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Problem solved. I, I, you know, there's going to be fewer injuries, right, Ron? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because uh, we'll all be perfect. <laughs> Get rid of that pesky human element. Yes, we just going to. And there'll never be heartache. <laughs> perfect and imperfection. Yay. AI. We're probably going to have to do a session on that. Uh, Gary, aren't you an AI, a student of AI? Um, I am an AI expert, which means I, I know what I don't know. But I do have a bunch of folks I can direct you to in links. How's that? Hey, oh, hey Gary, that. the secret is to pretend that you know everything. Right. Then, exactly. you'll, then you'll fit right in. Right. Be yeah, that, Gary, be that's that far ahead, right? Just, that's all you have to do, just a little bit. <laughs> Actually, I would love to have a session on AI. I was, I was working in AI back in the first wave, back in the 1980s, and saw the whole, whole bust of... Uh, when expectations were not achieved. So be an interesting discussion. Oh, uh, um, I think, well, you know, the, the main thing, the reason I was depressed is because they were talking about the huge job losses that are going to be happening in the next, uh, within the next hundred years uh, and re- totally reshape the notion of, of humanity's existence, right? Like, why, why do you exist? And what are they going to be doing instead of work? How are they going to survive, make a living? I mean, the implications are enormous. Well, it, it, it comes down to in the conversations that, uh, and Janice, you're quite aware of them, is that, um, is it, do we do technology augmented by people? Or do we do people things augmented by technology? Which way do we want to go? Could you say that right. again? I don't think I, right. I'm not clear. What happens, and a good example is you go back to the 80s, 90s, okay. when we did business process reengineering, <clears throat> we did ERP. And what basically it was that we introduced information technology. Here's a new SAP Oracle system. Here it is here. And you people have to fit the processes. So get with the program. So it's kind of like be changed change or be changed. So that's where actually technology is augmented by people. So the push is, and, the, and where we come from is, no, it's the other way around. It's people augmented by technology. 
Right. So if you accept that, that takes you on a different path of AI than if you look at just technology. How does that affect uh, like jobs in the future, uh, the future of work? Right, so if you know the Kinevin framework, for example, we actually have the clear domain. And in the clear domain is where robotics goes. It's where automation goes. And the feeling is those are kind of things that the human mind brain doesn't really need to do anyways, because they're very straightforward, they're clear, given to a robot, a machine that never makes mistakes. That supposedly frees our minds up to do all that messy stuff that's over in the complex domain. The stuff that I don't think, and few of us don't think that, computers will ever, ever be able to do. At the because end of the day, machines, cannot... the machines can't fail. And if you think about exactly. the kind of stuff that we do, it's the heart stuff. Yeah. It's the empathy. It's the why do we make decisions that we do because of feelings and of touch and of sensitivity. Yeah. You know, it's those pieces right. that machines and, can never do. And machines are built on algorithms. And algorithms are built by humans who rely on the past. That's how they program, because you cannot program for an unknown, an unmanageable, unknowable. And that's what you're right, Louise. We can probably feel it. We can probably sense it. We have early detections here. I mean, just look at what happened yesterday here. I mean, like, who didn't see the early warning signs that something was going to happen? And why weren't we prepared for it? And I say we from the context of, I think what happened in the States happens around the world. So as a Canadian, I just feel so much part of what happened to yesterday. Like, could that happen here in Canada? Well, we did have our railways and a lot of key services shut down here in Canada for a number of weeks, didn't we? As well. Yeah, Last yeah. Week. I mean, so Louise, you're right. I think it's all about feeling. It's that the ability to what we call do sense making and try to put this entangled sort of messy world together and trying to figure out what is the future? Because we can't predict the future, but we can actually watch the future emerge one step at a time. And that's kind of like, as, as Ron, you kind of know, I talk about when I talk about safety, we kind of make, you know, we, we change the conditions to enable safety to emerge. It's the same thing. I mean, robots can't do that. And, and We're at a really thing. important place in history to be asking these questions. So, you know, if you think about where we, you know, we're having these conversations and we're all in different parts of the world. And we're all experiencing the same thing. So in many ways, we're coming together. Um, and so now is the time for us to be asking these questions, because I think history is going to look back at our leadership and, and scrutinize the decisions that we're making right now. Yeah. And, so and we about well-being. We can talk about well-being in, right. in the workforce, in the organization. But we can also talk well-being of the, of the globe, of the country. right? Well, the, the, it, yeah, this is a global thing. And, you know, in the past, and I think this was what was behind the coup yesterday's attempted coup in the United States, uh, was that we made this huge change to a global economy without considering uh, the people that were going to be impacted. You know, I'm, I have to go from making 30 or $40 an hour. Now I'm making 15 at McDonald's and we say, oh, you know, be happy. 
you have a mm. job and that's not the way it works because people like the welders and, and the people that used, to, that used to make a good living with a high school diploma suddenly find themselves adrift, right? In a sea of uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, and so this is, this is, you can multiply it by, with AI, you, it's like a million fold. The, the, the transition and the transformation. And we don't seem to really, I mean, we're not thinking about it now about all the people that were, um, you know, left out of the global economy. And who's gonna be, who's thinking about what the AI is gonna do to, uh, to the human um, mm -hmm. existence? Yeah. I mean, it's one thing for me, what the pandemic has done is just accelerated a lot of things we're gonna be coming That's anyways. True. Yeah, we all had a chance to sit back at home remotely, look at each other, talk to each other, and actually connect in some ways here. Yeah, and even though 2020 may be characterized as a terrible year, mm -hmm. there was a hell of a lot of technological breakthroughs that we saw. We also saw too how vulnerable we are with a global supply chain, and what are you going to do about that? Uh, the thing that really gets me in the area I'm exploring now is is the whole area of economy of economy where we've always been on this classical um, economy theory that growth is good. Consumption. You know, but growth I... is, you know, this idea of unlimited growth. I think some of us are being a pushback saying, um, we can't do unlimited growth anymore. It's, uh, well, we never could, but we didn't know it. <laughs> but we still try to do it, right? We still push yeah. profit. We still push yeah. G GDP. I mean, right. there's so many different papers that are, we gotta stop looking at GDP, but we do. We start look. We keep looking at the stock market, all these sort of indicators, and we kind of sit back and go, like, are these the right measures? You know, well, are these, you know, are these Ron, causing ill-being or well-being? These sort of yeah, measures. I agree with you, Gary. And and Ron, you just shared a couple of papers. What um, what was your thinking there? So, if anybody has not read uh, Bainbridge's Ironies of Automation, I think it's it's a classic paper in this sort of space talking about technology. Um, it's from the 80s, uh, which is, is shocking yeah. to me because the stuff it's talking about, it's so uh, it's so important for what we're talking about today. Um, the basic argument is that as technology increases, we often try to uh, you know, automate things to make it easier for humans. And in the process, we end up making it harder. Um, we automate to the point where uh, we just, where the end of our technology is without thinking about what that does to the human operator and end up making more work. Or we automate the easy stuff and leave the hard stuff for the for the worker, even though that may not be the best thing for the worker. Um, that may not be the, the you know, that, that you might degrade their skills. And so when they're called upon to actually use their skills in that moment, they have less transparency on the, the system. They have less skills on how to use, uh, uh, how to operate within the system. And so it's it's pretty interesting uh, paper. I think it's uh, worth a read. It's, it's a short one too. Really yeah. interesting point, Ron. When we continue to impose a technological system on an ecological one, that's where I think we get into big trouble. Uh, and I, I think we've we've kind of run the road of how far technology can take us as humans. And now um, it's maybe embracing that complexity part of the human and that not everything is linear. And Gary, I know you probably have a lot to say about that. Well, it's interesting too, where you talk 
Uh, well, Janice, Janice had her hand up. Oh, I'm sorry. Go That's ahead, Janice. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I come from the mining business, uh, the very front end, exploring where we're trying to discover. So, you know, metals in the ground. And so we're stepping into the unknown on, on many different fronts, right? And um, where we're seeing AI is now in the technical data, all of the geology information can be collected from different sources. Um, AI is being used to collate all of that and come up with, you know, some of these ideal targets. But what I see as the challenge is, is that's coming from someone who is an operator just in the, from the perspective of the technical data, you take that onto the project on the ground. And now the people running the projects have to go look at these targets and go, you know what, we can't for safety, because uh, the weather is changing, the time of year, we don't have water to run the drills. Um, even the people, it's a busy time. So we have people with lower skill now who are on site who can't build the structures needed to support these big drill rigs. It becomes a problem because for me as a project manager, when I'm on site, I need to actually dissect all of those elements and layers of technical information so I can decide, look, we can't drill the ideal one. It would be great if we can. But let me look, because that is actually a system itself um, that we're looking at. And it, so I have to dissect it and pick out what piece can I like move over from that target to test part of it, that information. I can go right at it, but I can go indirectly. And I think with AI, people start looking at all of the accumulation of this question that nobody sees what's behind it. What is the source question? And it's very difficult now, you're not necessarily able to digest. So you can go and ask questions at a different level of detail. What do you think, what do you think is the source question, uh, Janice, just to complete? Well, it, it could be several, several different ones, right? Because what they're doing is they're looking at all of these elements like, okay, what is evidence of, um, you know, a source fluid that has moved through the rock? You know, um, you know that can. What's evidence of a, of a pathway, a channel where those fluids can move along? And then, where is there a where is there evidence in the rock of barriers um, in there? But there's all different permutations and combinations of those because we're trying to find where does gold drop out? What are these fine little fractures? They're like little mini accidents all over the place. They're accumulating that allows the pieces of the metal, whether it be copper or gold, to be in the document. And um, there's a lot of different conditions of those fundamentals. And so we don't get to see those questions in there, right? So there can be multiple ones. When we talk algorithm, an algorithm is like a, um, a whole series of compiled questions, you might think of it that way. And that is what they use to develop these targets. It'll, an algorithm will spit out, you know, an outcome. Isn't that but, the limitation, Janice, right, with AI is it's all, I've only read this, so I'm not an expert. It's so, um, it's so, 
reliant on the data that's put in. And the data itself that's put in is biased. And there are so many factors and variables that are playing into it. How do we make a decision? And is yeah. that decision contextual? And we're not necessarily seeing where is the cumulative certainty and uncertainty within all of that, just like any work environment that we're in, right? There's threads of certainty that we're working in, threads of uncertainty. And if, if we're not, if we're just putting all that together without even being conscious and self-aware of our environment, we're in trouble, you know? Okay. I was gonna say one of, you know, when we think about AI, it could be, it's the simplest thing. It's, we have a problem. And the first thing we do is we go to Google. When I was, you know, I've been in health and safety for, for is gonna, this is gonna be my third decade. So, that, you know, I'm, I'm up to 30 years this year. You look and so young, Louise. Thank Ooh. you. I started when I was five. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and when I started, I had to look stuff up in books. I had to work the answer out. Um, and I see younger professionals coming through now and they need a template. They need to be told exactly how to do something before they can proceed. We've, we've kind of, you know, somewhere along the line, we're in danger of, 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 of losing our ability to take these complex issues and actually sit and think about them and work it out because it's really easy to go to Google. It's really easy to get a soundbite. You know, you write an article and everybody wants it in 600 words. Um, so are we going, are, are we forgetting where we've come from in a way because we have all of this technology at our fingertips? Yeah. Well, that I think was... Google's just made it too easy almost. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm like, well, you know, everything's Louise, on a template. <laughs> you made me think of this, Louise. I mean, don't we drill it into everyone, the importance of compliance? You know, so that that means that somebody has all the answers and they're, they're giving them to you and you just have to execute, doesn't it? So why should yeah, I it does, it does, but I think we need to grasp hold of the, we, we are in a world now that is so complex and changing so quickly. And, and that's one of the things that's happened. We cannot have a rule book for absolutely everything that we do. So in order for us to, to move to the next level, which we're talking about in health and safety, shouldn't we be actually looking at creativity and if, taking some of those ideas and moving them on. And I think we're in danger of, of becoming too rigid at the same time. And that's where we lose the feeling and the human piece for me. Well, I agree with you. Um, an upcoming opportunity that we might want to check into. Uh, some of you will remember that uh, this last September, there was supposed to be the International Conference on Applied Artificial Intelligence in Norway. It got postponed due to COVID. They had a small virtual event. Uh, I was one of the speakers at that. The full conference will be this May. And once again, it will be virtual, but should be much larger. What I don't know is whether they're going to have sessions addressing organizational 
in human issues or not. Uh, I have I have contact with the uh, organizers, uh, and so I can inquire about that and what the program when it's ready. Um, so it might be a place where these kinds of things could be could be introduced and discussed. And 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 the call for papers is still open. Mm. Well, I, absolutely. If it's not on the agenda, I I would be shocked. Yeah, I will. Um, I will put the link to the conference in in uh, the comments. I love what Gary has just put in the comments. Are we are we are we developing recipe followers when we should be developing chefs? That's excellent, and I'm going to keep that one, Gary. That's a good one. <laughs> well, you be plagiarized. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because. Um, you know, being a consultant, um, consultant of one now, but having to be involved in, with the um, big consulting firms, that was kind of drilled into us, but it was drilled in it from a different way. Oh, we're big consultants here. We need to get find those recipe followers because we have the right recipe for them. We'll just give it to them and we'll just make sure they follow the recipe and we'll just roll out the model and we'll make tons of money. And I kind of said, there's something wrong with this, but I could not put my finger on it. Like, what is wrong with this? Then it dawned upon me here, God, you know, we should be chefs. What do we mean by chefs? We need to understand the principles behind things, right? And understand that um, there could be more than one right answer. But the best thing to do it is not to do it to people, but do it with people. And that's the kind of like shift I've had to go through myself to kind of get into a better space where I feel good about what I'm doing. I could not agree more. This is where we need to be. We need to develop this in people so that they look after themselves and they look after the person standing next to them. Um, and they're not going to do that based on a rule book. <laughs> Um, and I just love that analogy and I'm going to keep it and steal it. <laughs> By all means. Yeah, go ahead. Use that. Rosa, you just typed in that young people start as followers. It's really true, they do. And yet some of the most creative, ingenious leadership is observed in children too. I think children more than anyone know when to lead and when to follow. Um, and it's a beautiful thing, not always, but they do demonstrate that capability much more easily, I think, than than adults. You're right. I, there's that famous uh, group exercise where uh, people are asked to figure out how to put a, a marshmallow on the top of this tower. And apparently the engineers took much longer than the kindergarten class. <laughs> and that's an example of, of your thinking. You know, by the time you're an adult, your thinking has been so structured by your, your profession, by you know, your mentors and everybody. Uh, it's it's very hard to let all that go. Yeah, I, I there was an exercise that we did when I was um, doing creative um, thinking with Edward de Bono. The exercise was here's a picture of a wheelbarrow, but the wheel was not in the front. It was in the middle or in the back part, and you look at that and you kind of go like, okay, um, quickly in the next five minutes, write down what you think about this thing. So people write down. And then they would analyze it. And, and the whole thing came down to is that for adults, they found like five bad things for every one good thing. But for children, it was a one-to-one -one ratio. 
they found a whole bunch of really interesting positive things as opposed to negative. You know who the worst group was? Engineers. Teachers. Who? Teachers were the worst group. They Teachers? had ratios oh, no, of 20 to one, which is funny. But then it says, well, if you look at it, if you go to a school ground, look it's at so all not funny. the signage says, don't do this, don't do that. Where are the signs that say you can do something? So it made us really think about that. But what, but what Edward said is that what happens is that when you're young and you're naive, you don't have the ability to learn how to judge and evaluate. You learn that as going to school and you learn how to do all the evaluative critical thinking. You learn all that sort of stuff here. As a young kid, you just think everything's cool. Well, I'd argue about that. Like, don't people learn like how to walk and everything like that by evaluating? Oh, you know, um, or how to get up, or even like motor skills. Do you not have that kind of ability to evaluate very early on? Yeah, I think that goes back to Rosa's. That you know, they follow. They're excellent followers of subtlety, and somehow, probably to Gary's point, it's worked out of us. Um, with the rigidity that, that we do need to, to do well in society. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I think, in, I think yeah. in what we do, that there is some rigidity. You know, there are some things that are, are, are those pieces that can't move, that uh, need to be there. But we've tried, to, I think we need to let go of some of it. I think there needs to be a much greater balance and we that's where we need to put the heart back into it into to the, the stuff that we're doing yeah we do talk about putting more play back into work well just kind of kind of like that's what kids do they play why can't we do that at work uh because we'll make something wrong <laughs> i i'd like to hear there's some people that haven't spoken would anybody like to break in because this is such a talkative group those of us who are comfortable wayne your your sound you're muted if you're trying to talk to us wayne we still can't hear you there you go okay i just want to piggyback on uh, what gary was talking about <clears throat> about um you know, the signs that say, don't do this and don't do that and everything. And it just reminded me that uh, yeah, quite a while back, I learned that that is not effective. Telling people what not to do is not effective. And yet that's what we do in a lot of places. You see it, you know, especially with safety, don't safety rules. Don't, 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 don't. And it not only, you know, doesn't get people to avoid what you want, but it actually gets them to focus on that and you go where you focus and so it's one of the contributing factors that actually causes people to do what you don't want them to do, you know? And so it's, it's not an easy thing, you know, like, it, like I'm trying to explain this, you know, if I have to use the word, don't use, don't, you know, but right. uh, yeah, don't use, don't. <laughs> uh, and I've gotten around that by using the word avoid, you know, avoid, that's something that you can do, you know, avoid yeah. this, avoid this, avoid the risk. And, and so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, yeah, I think our language is critical, Wayne, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. When you start absolutely. a sentence with but, everybody knows you're, you know, they're discounted, right? Oh, but. The but. Don't, don't be a butthead, right? That's what I always <laughs> said. It's a lot of buttheads. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and actually, and, you know, on top of that, you know, what I've learned also with that is instead of saying but, 
you know, you use the word and, yeah. you know, it's much more effective. Yeah. Janice just asked a really cool question. Did it? She, she asked from Janice, do you want to ask it? That's silly of me to read it. Well, yeah, I'm just wondering like how humans evolve and um, what's more comfortable for us, don'ts or do's. And, you know, I think about in a system, in a safety system, how we're always thinking about how the flow of energy and the connection of energy sources and how they impact humans and our environment or our bodies. And um, what about on that front? Good question, yeah. Well, this session was about looking forward, right? And what we've learned from the past. And um, it, it seems this is gonna be cool because we're all gonna come from our own histories and perspectives, et cetera. It's, it's really interesting how we seem to keep doing 180 flips. Um, so we went, you know, safety one and, and everything was linear and it focused on what shouldn't be done. And then we went safety two and let's focus on what, what, what goes right. And, you know, I, I think now the movement seems to be around context and how context is what really drives how we determine what's safe and what's unsafe and, um, and, and there is no right or wrong. And, and maybe this is the period of, of balance of, you know, even with, is it technology or is it ecology? And how do we weave those in? Um, and how can we get comfortable with these seeming opposites? And maybe we're getting to a place and maybe COVID has even stimulated it of being able to recognize kind of both worlds or both aspects of things. Lisa, did you really mean, did you really mean to say there is no right or wrong? In, as a no. Oh. Well, when did I use it, Rosa? In Just what now. context did I, in what con, in what specific? Well, because you're, you're talking about when people are trying to sense make what to do, that mm -hmm. there is no right or wrong. I think there's always right or wrong. I was saying, and thank you for asking me to clarify, I think it's contextually driven. And I, I, I do think that people are looking for a magic bullet. It comes back down to they want a recipe that is the magic bullet. And so safety one's right, safety two's right. Actually, it is about where you find yourself and the organization that you're dealing with. And I've worked in a huge range of organizations and you know I go back to plan do check act every single time and you treat everything differently and what works in one organization is not necessarily going to work in another um, and I think what you were saying about there is no right or wrong is um, we all see perceive things in different ways um, and if and and I think in the nature of our profession is we want to say you can't do that. Um, and so we've, it, it, how do we bring creativity back into what we're doing is what I'm saying. Yes. The term, the term that we use is called bounded applicability, bounded applicability, which really goes back to what you said, Wayne. Um, why do we get ourselves into dichotomies? Why can't it be both and? So one of the things I'm doing as a bit of a test for myself is anytime I see a two by two table, whatever, and there's a left and a right side, 
I'm actually going, stop, Gary, think about this. Why can't it be both and? Why do I have to go? Why am I being forced to go either or? It could be safety one, because the context requires it. It could be safety two. The other yeah. language we're using now is that, is it robust or is it resilient? Why can't it be both? Right. But, uh, you know, I think when we go too far to the end of there's no uh, right or wrong, then we lose people because everybody knows that there are some things that are just physically cause and effect that, that you can actually, you know, you shouldn't do because they're going to blow up or whatever. But I, I so I think we have to be careful about our, our language and stay very applicable. But Earl, you had your hand up. What were you going to say? Just to, to, to shift a moment, consistent with what you're saying, but I, I want to share with you this. I received a marvelous paper, a new paper, and I'll, I'll share it with you if I can figure out how to do this. I will one way or another, but I just got it this weekend uh, by three academics in Chile. And they were doing the, the report. The paper is on uh, qualitative of the miners who were trapped in that horrid accident in 2010. So as I, as I read through this marvelous, marvelous story, part of the story is about everyone went crazy. Okay, and I can't think of the you know, the horrid conditions they found themselves in. These people who were minors, you know, there's lots of context around the, the pitiful condition of the mine and things that the owners are allowed to happen and all that kind of stuff. But these people who, whose lives are spent in those conditions, but all of a sudden they found themselves in something that completely beyond human conception until you experience it. And they went crazy. These professionals, tough guys. And there was a supervisor there with them. And the supervisor somehow had the insight that the traditional roles and responsibilities, the social norms no longer applied. And you couldn't proceed as if they could, should, because that wasn't going to work. Mm. And then the, the, the rest of it was how they, within themselves, in this different context, I, I call it, I think about it in terms of went back to some basic social structuring. They kind of went from starting from zero in a way, not exactly zero, but somehow they structured themselves into relationships and behaviors that allowed them to survive for what, 69 days or something like that. Mm. And so I was corresponding with, you know, a, a nuclear and Intel uh, uh, friend of mine, executive back in DOE now, and saying, hey, you think about this in the context of COVID. And so the, the, the thinking that I just wanted to drop into the discussion was we talk about rules and we talk about models and we talk about all those kind of things. And we can go back and say, hey, 
this is this is old stuff. There's studies of expertise. There's all I don't care what you call it. Safety one, safety two. You know, this ain't like it hadn't been talked about before. But if we start thinking about, and I do the but, forgive me there. The if we start, <laughs> and I try to make myself do this. Think about questions like, what what is it that we do that's common in terms of forming social relationships, Rosa? Uh, how do we somehow, I'm going to say almost innately, to take about the child situation, figure out in a something we haven't encountered before, how do we go about in a way that we can work forward? So anyway, that's some of the things that I was thinking about listening to the conversation and at least where in my little practice is no written now is get people you know out of the well I have to do my model or this model or fundamental that we can apply as you said Lisa to to different contexts understand when contexts change understand the rules associated with different contexts the behaviors and have a better portfolio of understanding to recognize when the situation is recognized, when we need to go back and say, okay, how do we now change the hierarchy, change the rules, and how do we socialize ourselves into the situation? Those are the thoughts that were in my mind. So for whatever that's worth, I'll see if I can figure out how to share this paper. It's quite powerful. Nice. I tried to capture those questions in the chat, Earl. Um, I think what you're asking is what what are what do we see are the common social kind of relationship aspects, and I think the other part of that is when we enter novel situations, how are we successfully adapting socially as well as in the process? Is, is that a fair capture? Oops, I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing my mute unmute thing here. Uh, it really was not intended. I didn't have a coherent message. I had thoughts that that reading that paper, you know, stimulated in the context of you know what I've been, what we've all been living with, what I've been working with, and and seeing all the different perspectives, you know, about the different responses to to, to COVID, I guess, and trying to think my way forward to a more fundamental way of looking, you know, than than using models to do so. You know, that's, that's basically it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More reactive. So yesterday I had a really interesting conversation with Chuck Castro, who we invited onto the Thought Lab, and he went as a consultant out to Fukushima. And in his book, Blackout, he had, uh, and thank you, Bill, for introducing me to him, by the way. Um, he had a really interesting perspective on the uniqueness of leaders in times of crisis in the unknown and the unexpected. And, you know, in our conversation yesterday, it, it was interesting how the convergence of both spontaneous, uh, pragmatic management capability and the ability to put processes in place quickly, so management, and the ability to catalyze people from an emotionally safe place were both critical to success. Um, and, and we wanted to continue and will continue. How does that crisis management leadership differ 
from everyday leadership? And could our future be looking at needing more of that crisis leadership, management leadership uh, profile? So I, your, your thoughts kind of stimulated that for me, Earl. That's, that's very insightful, Lisa. I look forward to, uh, <laughs> when is our thought lab? When will that be? Do we have a date yet? Yeah, we're going to go in March and uh, I shouldn't put Chuck on the spot, but I guess I will because he's not here to counter it. Uh, he'll, he'll be our invited speaker. Okay, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, what is the difference between crisis? It's, uh, what does it do to, to us as humans um, that makes us more collaborative, uh, more open? To new information, can we can we generate that same reaction out of crisis? Right. And and maybe some of those characteristics will be the same. I, I think it's worthy of some investigation and yeah. uh, observation. Yep. It comes from modern leadership, though, isn't it? It's that kind of letting go. It's it's saying, you know take this work it out i'm not gonna give you the recipe um and and in a crisis we're all in the same boat we've none of us have got the answer so we work it through together and i think as leaders it's that piece where we don't give someone the recipe and stand back and let them develop mm. and that's not always a com you know that's not necessarily a comfortable place to be you know, yes, yes, and after talking to Chuck No too, Louise, it was fascinating to realize that part of our safety to perform in crisis is having a leader who steps up and can give some guidance, but then can also say, hey, I need the experts to come in. So it seems like it might be this interesting hybrid. I'm going to shut up and let others talk. Sorry, I'm talking so much. It's all about the balance. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can I, I'd like for a moment to go back to Earl's observation with the miners in Chile because they were put into, they were forced into a life-changing situation, right? Uh, and so they had to develop but, but they, I mean, in, in OD, of course, we have these models that talk about how groups form, right, that they go through certain cycles. And one of, one of the things that happens right away is that somebody emerges as a leader, right? Uh, and there, there may be more than one, but usually it's one. Uh, and, uh, uh, and then there's that whole, you know, conflict and then, you know, getting together on, yeah, this is the way we're going to go forward and then going forward. So there seems to be that, uh, that cycle that that we go through. So I wonder, but if that happens in crisis, but at a much faster rate. Typically in crisis, um, you're hoping that the group has already gone through what you're calling the storming stage. Mm -hmm. And um, you're hoping that they've, they've moved through that stage and they've gotten to a stage where they can work out conflict in a very quick way in order to move through that crisis. I, as I had come from a social work background and I've always found it very intriguing that in the health and safety professional field, we don't talk about developing and nurturing group dynamics mindfully in the workplace. 
So I put that out for food for thought. Yeah, is that something that is a future need? Because again, I, I, I hope that we can emphasize the point of this discussion today is what is different in our future? What is the ideal performance environment? So is, is what you're proposing something that is going to be a critical factor? What are other people's thoughts? We're hearing a lot of quiet people today. We're not here. Hearing <laughs> people. That's a good one. <laughs> well, yeah. um, I, I can give a slightly different perspective. I, I, I'm afraid I was late to the meeting, so I didn't hear. We're glad you came. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just just hearing some some of the bits there i i do unfortunately probably like many of you accident or incident investigations and sometimes they're with people i've worked with for um quite some time and one of one of the key things i find when something has gone wrong and someone's been injured is people are far more willing to listen because they actually have to um, not only because someone's being hurt, but because there are there are other driving forces. They may be prosecution, they can be insurance issues, uh, and, and people are often scared when they're at that crisis point. So the the, the group is fun that that you may have given similar messages to, whether it's about training, guarding, attitude, staffing levels, fatigue. They change remarkably when they've had a fatigue or a training-related accident, and there is more of a Damascus approach that people suddenly see that light and and book lots of things that they could have done any time in the last six months, two years, three years, so, um, and that is shaped by crisis or by events. And if I've and if I've missed the direction of the room, please accept my English apologies. Not at all. We all have accents, right? Um, I noticed, uh, Ron, you put a, a question into the chat. Did you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, I mean, this discussion about crisis, what pops in my head is actually something from Barry Turner's work on uh, disaster incubation theory and, and in his theory one of the things that struck me that was interesting is this definition of a disaster is an event that causes a sort of like social shift in how we see the world like a fundamental surprise like oh my god the world is very different some of us may have had that yesterday um you know uh you know it, yeah. there's something that just shakes us right to the core um, and, and that, you know, and then piggybacking on that, um, there's another paper, um, and I can't remember the author's name from the 90s, where he said the best predictor of emergency behavior is pre-emergency behavior. Because to say otherwise, it assumes that the people are aware that this is an emergency and I need to change my normal patterns, mm -hmm. right? And so there has to be a step that people go through if we we're going to say that, you know, how do people respond in a crisis? Well, the same way they'd respond in a non-crisis, unless they know that they need to do something different. So how do people know that they need to do something different? What are the triggers that help them identify that this is actually something, this is bad, you know? You know, the, the question about the Capitol Police yesterday, I think is a great example. 
you know, a lot of people are criticizing their response. How do they know the difference between a normal protest and an insurrection? You know, does someone, does this alarm go off? Does a, is there a flag that goes up? Uh, you know, I mean, what, what happens? You know, they, they need to be able to identify that in real time and then respond appropriately. Well, I, have, I have a theory about that, but we don't want to get into politics, you know, because for when the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters were there, they were very well prepared. Yes, well, I, and I think that that plays into it. I think these are all factors. I, I think so. We're human beings, right? And we all come, as you said, we, we all come from our own experience and our own perspective. CNN did a really great job of analyzing last night and having many perspectives on it. It was uh, interesting how they were saying just what you're alluding to, Ron, and that is our ability to pay attention to the nuanced cues so that they're no longer nuanced. And, and we train ourselves. Now I'm going back to some work that Jim and I had done for uh, the DOE labs for a number of years. How do we train to recognize those nuanced cues so that we do prep prior to crisis? It can be done. Well, it's done, so, for example, the FBI, right? The FBI, all the people that work in security, they, they train all the time. Uh, on how to respond. I, I would offer that no matter what level of response they had, there would be people picking it apart today in hindsight. You know what I mean? Uh, if they over-respond, that's a problem. If they under-respond, that's a problem. And when everything goes perfectly, nobody says anything. Mm -hmm. That's learning, Bill. Great point. We're always going to learn. No matter how well something's executed, there's always opportunity to evaluate it. And over-preparing could be just as dangerous. Well, it's interesting because in our social, social work degree program, which for me was five years, we took crisis management training right through all those five years because that was a prerequisite. You couldn't graduate if you didn't do that class. So I'll put that out, that out from another discipline. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if that's part of um, the safety um, profession set of skills or it needs to be. That could be a discussion for the future because one of the things that I find so often <clears throat> is people tell me that they really haven't had much education in how to work with people, you know, the human condition and how to, how to respond. Um, so I think that perhaps uh, since we're going into a profession where crises do happen in, at different levels, that that would be one type of training, how to react, how to support, how to, what do you guys think? Rosa, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I, I absolutely think we're at, at a crossroads in respect of what we're doing and it's come out of this pandemic. So um, our profession has tried to be, I think, a little bit too black and white and we need to start to thrive in those areas of grey. And where 
we're trying to build these processes to for the right reasons to protect people we're at are we actually losing sight of, of why we're doing it and we're doing that not just for the safety side which is stopping accidents happening but you think of health and and getting people to retirement in a in a good shape in a good place and this pandemic has has, has allowed us to focus on health that takes heart and it takes we call them soft skills, but for me, they're not soft skills at all. They're difficult. They're power skills. They're the things that make the difference. And I wonder if we've lost some of that along the way in this pandemic is, is showing us that we need to we need to we need to come from a heart place. And that's an AI cannot do that. <laughs> Going back to the start of our conversation. It's in fact, actually, um, quick, critical thinking skills when you're dealing with a crisis, right? Because you have everything that's coming at you, like a fire hose, you have to very quickly determine what are you gonna focus on and what, what can you put to the side until you can come back to it. And you only have matters of seconds. Like when we're dealing with people who are suicidal, I can't take a meeting to discuss with everybody what our plan is, right? I've got to decide on the spot when I was dealing with people with Alzheimer's and I had somebody coming at me with a saw because they thought it was a tennis racket. Again, I can't group with my team to see, hey, what are we gonna do here? You know, I had to evaluate right there on the spot. So that was the kind of training though that we did over the five years so that when we got out, we were prepared. Just to tap in if, if I may, uh, I, I wanna, offer a distinction to to tag into what several of you just said um, and that is a distinction I've tried without success to uh, discuss with some of my engineering friends the difference between an emergency and a crisis okay we have all these wonderful I spent years doing this before I started this this other uh, incarnation um, you know, emergency plans are based on retrospective, you know, analysis of prior incidents. A crisis is something I've never faced before. Uh, and that's a very important distinction. And I go to what you said tomorrow, for example, and, and you were just talking about Louise, um, is the people that, at least the, in, in my experience, who have a, a different skill set are what Gary Klein talks about, the first responders, what my friends who are former, you know, veterans of special operations, they train for, excuse me, they train for kittens jumping in your lap, okay? Uh, they train, <laughs> that's what just happened to me here. Uh, they uh, have one on this side and I have one on this side, okay? Uh, but, um, they train for relationships and teamwork. Okay, that's the spec ops people, uh, the incident command people, you know, they, they have certain repertoires and it's the recognition prime that Gary talks about that you work tomorrow. You have, you have a port, uh, an extensive portfolio of, of models that you can then start working toward. What might this look like and what skills do I have to bring to start giving at that in terms of complexity theory and all that kind of stuff. But my point is that in, at least in my, my career, most of the training is for emergencies. 
you know, not for these specialized situations where you have to re- and and start working your way forward. And that's in the, the more rare ops kind of people and uh, uh, incident command people who train for relationships and communication, I'll say. Bill, I think you've had some work in that area too. I see several of you shaking your head. So anyway, those are my thoughts. I, that's really, I had never thought of that, Earl, the difference. And it's very real, isn't it? The the interesting thing is, uh, in the military, in the fire service, things like that, we we train people in the soft skills. We train people in working together. We train people in uh, uh, having professional relationships, right? So it doesn't doesn't matter if we like each other. We're going to work together because we have to. And then in the, in the private sector, even in the public sector outside of that, we, we promote people based on some criteria and we hire people based on a criteria that has nothing to do with that, right? We, we run them through school and they learn all my work must be my own. I, I can't cooperate with others. And then we put them in a position where they have to build cooperating teams and we're surprised that it doesn't work. Oh, I'm sorry, that was out loud. <laughs> Bill, that's so right on. It's so right on. And you know, competition is part of our human nature. We're always looking for threat, right? It's how we evolved and survived. And we also had to survive by cooperating. So maybe again, both are true. And how do we discriminate when one is required and when one is not? Uh, it's curious, uh, nice, nice point. Well, I see it's almost nine o'clock and I, I'm willing to stay longer, but I'm wondering if we could turn to, we've had such a great discussion. Can we call out some questions or topics that we want to explore in the coming year? Um, if we could formalize them into, into questions from what everyone has said or, or just topics. What, uh, let's hear from each person. Uh, whoever's ready may start first. What's, uh, what really struck, struck you as a learning point, a mm-hmm. point of departure for learning for the years to come? I'd like to start, actually. Am I on? Yes. Can yes. you hear me okay? One of the things I think that the, the COVID crisis actually highlighted to me was how when it first started, uh, people really, you know, were fearful. And uh, it was just, you know, a lot of fear, and even for myself. <clears throat> and as time went on, you know, that fear dwindled. And, uh, you know, people started just disregarding the whole thing about distancing and masks and everything. And uh, in fact, there were people, I guess I heard that were thinking, oh, this whole thing is just a, a conspiracy and it wasn't even real. And it just reminded me of what uh, it's been like for, I've been in this safety for 40 years and, uh, you know, how prevalent it is everywhere I've been to, where it's the same situation where, you know, employees will put on their uh, PPE or follow safety rules when they, when they fear something, you know, Uh, but you know, that fear will dwindle. And in fact, I've, I've researched it a little bit. We've got something in our brains that, that is called uh, fear extinction. And uh, that's sort of what leads to complacency. 
but you know we were talking about you know like uh gary you mentioned the the recipes and being the chef <clears throat> and a lot of people in that in that uh analogy a lot of people may not be interested in eating and so it's sort of with safety you know a lot of people aren't don't have the right attitude about it is what i'm really getting at and so i see a need you know to address this area where we're we're looking more at developing people you know our our the people that we're trying to protect developing a mindset that you know they need to avoid risk whether they have fear of something or not you know they need to they need to avoid risk of what the hazards that they're exposed to you know and they need to do that based on their knowledge and their respect for that for that risk and so that that is where i see there's a huge challenge in in, in safety everywhere so just wanted to throw thank that out there thank you wayne that was great ron are you still here with us he said he may have to jump off he just put in the chat that he had to go okay i was gonna ask if people have to leave if you could share your thoughts but we can stay a few bit uh a few minutes over if people are able to and some people are putting him into the chat that's great too <laughs> the chat is open I was going to even propose if uh, folks wouldn't mind before they jump off or as they jump off, what what is something either that was a learning point today or that you think is a wave of the future where we are going in safety. So either one would be really cool to compile. Hi, Rachel here. First time joining in on this and absolutely loving the conversation, learning a lot. And I suppose reliving a lot from everybody's experiences of what they're um, going through at the moment. And what's come across very strongly for me is, I think because of COVID, we've all gone through a very lived experience uh, within emergency crisis and planning for our workplaces. Um, and so I suppose within that, we've all had to take up both the leadership and uh, following. We've, we've gone both sides because we're looking for facts. We've had to stream through an awful lot of information, which is, look, we're all data nerds to a certain degree, or at least I am. But it is bringing the context, which we've talked an awful lot about today, uh, and, and bringing that context to the situation, as opposed to just talking about different things. And the huge thing that's come across for people coming back into the workplace is that emotional context, their well-being, their mental health, all these softer things, and I love the point that was made earlier, they're soft skills, but they are really a power skill. And I would love to see that as maybe, how do we get there, both from a leadership, management, and a, a supervisory capacity, because we're all linking into these different component parts of people working with systems, and then within that, I suppose, that dialogue. Um, there's a lot of um, information out there again, and how do we stream that to make it meaningful? Uh, so this is what I've really, really enjoyed in this conversation, and I hope I've brought that together uh, clearly. Uh, and if anybody has a question, please feel free to ask if I need to clarify. Well, Rachel, I think I think you made that very clear for me. Anybody have questions or? I'm throwing these in the chat, so if I'm not capturing it correctly, please edit. I'm taking notes too, Lisa. Two minds. <laughs> All right, anybody else? Come on, we, uh, 
about the AI thing? Oh, go ahead, Janice. Maybe hey, it's my first time here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to, to, to being a part of this. You know, one thing I think about um, is my passion is about helping people grow their understanding uh, and awareness of risk and uncertainty. And what I'm wondering is, is what, if, what would happen if we shifted that whole conversation about health and safety and instead stepped into a space of just a universal language? Because then I feel there may be an opportunity because companies and businesses also think about financial risk. But when we actually come into it, and it seems like a, such a distant world, but yet it's driving a lot of business and organizational decisions. And what if we can somehow scaffold by, you know, coming towards that type of language or introducing it as well? So. Lisa, you're giving the thumbs up. <laughs> I can't it's hear right you. On. It's so <laughs> right on. But I'm not going to take the floor again. Who, who else has? I was just going to say, uh, part of what Janice was describing there is what I see in ISO 31000, um, covering a whole host of, of different subjects, whether it be security, cybersecurity, food, they all, they all channel down that, that same process. And you're quite right, some, some common language would be, be really helpful. Um, for me, one of the things I see going into the next year um, put, coming very much to the, to the front is how we help people uh, and how we identify mental health issues within the workplace. It's, it's, it's a huge area that's been made much more difficult by, um, by, by the very sensible need to drive people out of the workplace to, to reduce one risk, but we are, we are subjecting them to different risks um, a lot of a lot of companies are are aware of the words, but I don't think they're necessarily aware of what it means in terms of employee health and and actually costs to that company when they start losing very skilled workers from their organisation and, and trying to help them to solve that before it's a problem. So yes, it's a crisis. It might not be an emergency yet, but it won't be long. Sorry to be cheerful. No. Most organizations come out with this whole, oh, just ask for help. We've got all these programs. And the thing is, the person in the mental health crisis doesn't know they need help. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in a mental health crisis. Oh, I'm sorry. That was out loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Couldn't agree more. Very true. The, the, the thoughts for me are around, um, you know, how do we, um, we talk a lot amongst ourselves. How do we engage with the business community? How do we engage with the people at the top of the organisations? Because when they have a mind shift, it shifts everything within their organisation. Um, and if we start talking about mental health, the way that we create safe places to work psychologically safe places to work is isn't to have programs in place to to support people after the issue it's to have inclusive safe um 
collaborative workspace where good work is good for people so the piece for me you know and if we think about it those people that have got to the top of those organizations have had um they like taking risks um they have probably got very masculine traits um you know hard leadership values but actually the world is changing so so i'm interested in how we capture those individuals and talk to the people in the top you know in those organizations that have got a different approach to leadership um, and have been successful from it so that we learn from a different approach and you know I, I'm starting to do a lot of work around human capital so there's if we look at talk about sustainability we all, we, we automatically think of the environment and but actually sustainability in business is much more than that and and it's about how we balance all aspects of a business to make it work and it's about putting people first because people are actually the solution to all of this and I'm going to shut up now <laughs> and thank you for having me and inviting me on well, thank you for coming it's been a delight everybody yes, yes. Everyone has added any other I, I was going to ask if there were any questions we want to pursue about AI, I do think that is a um, really big issue. It's the elephant in the room uh, in terms of the future. I think, I think it's well worth exploring. Uh, we probably need to work some to refine the topic a little bit because there's the whole human automation conundrum of how to properly integrate humans and AI. But then there's also the, the social and ethical issues as well regarding to AI. So I would strongly support further discussion on that, but we may need to focus the topic a little bit. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, it's complex, absolutely. Well, I don't mean to break up the party, everyone, but, but uh, yeah. it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with us today. It means a lot. Um, and thank you very much for joining us at the Safety View. Thank you. And before yeah. you jump, if you wouldn't mind, if we didn't hear from you, to just throw in a last note of where you might see things going. I would throw in awareness. We have to become more aware of what's happening in our environment. And in the, the light of transparency, Lisa, you have some exciting news um, that you wanted exciting, to share because yeah. you've got a new adventure in store. Thanks, Tamara. I just uh, will be backing away from uh, this program a bit, uh, probably pretty significantly, in order to work with the International Atomic Energy Association in Vienna which if you didn't know, uh, their, their mission is to ensure nuclear is used for peaceful purposes. So it's an exciting, mm. exciting honor. Um, and Earl Carnes is, is here and I wanna thank him personally for being such a huge advocate in this path. So anyway, I hope though to join you as much as possible because I love this. Well, I would say I'm going to miss you, but I'm not because we're gonna be very connected. Yes. <laughs> See, you guys, we're going to be stay very connected, and I'm sure you will join us whenever you're of able course. to. Of course. Mm -hmm.
And you've got your thought lab coming up, so you're not really leaving. Wow. How could I break from you, ladies? And Gary, not to. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Great. Have a great, Have a great day and change uh, the world. Yeah, <laughs> one conversation at a time. <laughs> one conversation at a time. Okay. One relationship at a time. Yes, yes. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for joining the Safety View. That was an amazing conversation. If you're looking for more great safety content to share out to your network and teams, please visit us at safepedia.com. Have a safe day.